Hey, before we start, if you're listening to this podcast, could you let me know? Send me an email at journalismsalute at gmail.com. Trying to get a better handle on how many people are tuning in. Let me know where you're listening from. Thank you. Hi, and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On this episode, we're joined by Andrew Galarno. Andrew has been a journalist for 35 years and a writer and editor at the Buffalo News for 26 years, 12 of those covering food. Now he's gone independent and started his own food newsletter, Four Bites, fourbites.net, F-O-U-R-B-I-T-E-S.net. He's also a journalism professor. Join me for my conversation with Andrew Galarno. Hi, Andrew. Thank you for joining me today. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. So the first thing that we typically do with our guests is we always start out the interview with what's your journalism origin story? I went to the University of Buffalo in 19, having grown up about 40 miles away in Genesee County in cow country, went to the University of Buffalo and wrote a piece that I thought somebody might be interested in the beginning of my sophomore year, so not my first year, my second year, of a Spectrum newspaper, which was publishing three times a week with a pullout entertainment section at that point, wasn't interested. But there was also a student-run weekly feature magazine at the University of Buffalo, run by students, for students, top to bottom, staff of 45, uh, a business staff. This publication made money selling a lot of bar ads and things. And I took it down there and ran into the guy who was in charge of it. And he read it and was like, oh, okay. And actually, we need a whole new staff. So that's how I was a sophomore and I became part of this organization. I became the number two person. And after, and then the next year I became editor in chief. So at, so I was 18 years old at this time, having gone to university at 16. So I was 18 years old and running a 40 page weekly student magazine with no adults between us and the press. Was there anything in your background that would have suggested that someone of your age would do that, whether it be your background, your family, your heritage, that lent itself to to storytelling in particular? What I can point to is my mother's value in language. And what I mean is that as long as we were reading a book, she was happy. So I became a kid who would, during the summer, go to the library, take out like two feet of books, like, you know, what, two dozen books, and then the next week bring them back having read most of them. My mother always corrected my grammar. Not a lot of people, I guess, get that because what I came out of it, I cannot diagram a sentence, but I can pick out what's wrong and fix it. And... So I came out with strong language skills, having read a lot and wanting to be a writer. I went to university thinking, I'm going to write books. But then I found out there's this other thing you can actually get paid to do, and that's journalism. And I'm like, okay, that sounds interesting. So I started reading, you know, some, okay, Hunter Thompson and some of the literary journalists, Tom Wolf, And I was like, wow, this would be something. And then I stumbled into an opportunity to actually do it. So... That's how that came together. Does that make sense? Yep. And how did the interest in food come about? Well, the food thing comes along later in the career. 
for the first 20 to 25 years there, 20 plus years, I wrote about the worst things people did to each other, crime, courts, fire, general news, features, other things, investigative reporting, specialty in con men preying on elderly women in Florida. And so when I finally realized that there was a place in journalism where all you could do is what you did was write about food, I was like, oh, I want to do that. So I wrote about food on the side when I got a chance. And the Buffalo News, when the food editor, Janice Oaken, retired, I put in for the job and had been already been writing on the side for the Sunday magazine. I wrote a food column for the Sunday magazine. So I was like very, very deliberately jockeying for a license to write about what's good. Do you have any family history with regards to being good cooks? Well, not particularly. I would describe myself more as a self-taught. When I was young, well, okay. For the first part of my life, being intensely religious, I'm no longer particularly religious, following religious principles at that point, we ate vegan diet, like no meat, no fish, no dairy products, half the year and as a, a religious observance, fasting, you know. And what that happened, what, ha what that did was it gave me the desire to really research and learn how to make things from different cuisines because vegan food, if you're not going to involve animals, I mean, some of the greatest work that's ever been done is all across the world in civilizations where they didn't have animals. Animals are expensive and they figured out how to make beans and rice and other things tasty. So I dug into that so basically to feed myself. So I was a little more well-versed than some people when I got an opportunity to write about food. And the other thing is, being a food writer, the best thing is to be a reporter first. Like every single thing that I ever saw, every word that I ever saw that I didn't understand, I looked it up and I read about it. And like, okay, I understand what, you know, the difference between, you know, saute and boiling. That's a dumb example, but, you know, I look up every ingredient, I look up every dish, and I just, it's been an ongoing uh, research thing, and when I run into something I don't know, I'm thrilled, and then I find out about it, and then I write about it. So just to circle back a little bit to the earlier part of your career, I went through newspapers.com, I found a lot of stuff from the Buffalo News, including... You mentioned that you got great opportunities when you were in college. You also got really good opportunities at the Buffalo News as an intern. I found a massive magazine-length piece on a local activist who was a communist, Jacob Kramer. I found another piece where you actually covered the 1988 presidential primaries. You were, I don't want to quite say embedded, but you were fully immersed in it for a week. What did you learn that was valuable from your earliest days in the business? I learned that if you could describe something to an editor that they liked and then come back with something that was pretty much like it, they would take a chance on you the next time. And the first piece, the Jacob Kramer piece, that was something that the editor wanted done and they didn't have a writer for it. And I was like, hey, I'll take a whack at it. And I got to read this guy's FBI file. He was a, a literally a wobbly organizer organizing sailors along the Great Lakes. And then the FBI got on him, and later on in life, he became an activist in the senior citizens movement. He became a gray panther. Just fascinating. I'm like, holy cow. And then I wrote it, and so I sat and talked with him, and then I wrote about, wrote it up, and I'm like, you get to do this? You get to just, like, relive history through other people's stuff, and you just got to get it right, and everybody's happy? This is great. 
and then I pitched the Naked at the Primaries piece that you're talking about, the New Hampshire primary, which probably had a little too much Hunter-esque gloss on it. I don't know <laughs> if you noticed that, but, you know, it's also real reporting. And when I when we went out there and I found, we found, we were just driving by, we see this sign, Pat Robertson for president, you know, Pat Robertson, Christian evangelist, television evangelist, holy cow. And right underneath it was a sign that said, uh, Running Waters Nudist Village. And I'm like, wait, the, those two signs shouldn't be next to each other, right? So we drove in there. We found this guy, Robert Bonzer, who's a born-again Christian nudist supporting Pat Robinson for president. And I'm like, I cannot believe this is the thing people get to do. Just go out and find, like, amazing reality of the world. And they, they'll pay you for it. I mean, I was kind of hooked, I'll be honest with you. Let's just say, shout out yep. to Hunter Thompson. That was like a format where, like, scenes, episodes, scenes from, you know, the campaign trail. Yep. So the other thing that I noticed in looking at writing from the early part of your career, and again, you're 35 plus years in there, it looks like you learned pretty early on not to waste words. I was reading some of the stuff you did in Concord, New Hampshire, where you had to write news briefs in the margins. And there were some interesting, I guess, things that happened there. You know, you're reporting on people setting fires on Halloween and stuff. How did your writing style wind up evolving as a younger person to, to where, where it's gotten to today? I would give credit to Mike Pride and the editors he hired at the Concord Monitor, which is my first, the first shop I worked for, because we got... So the Concord Monitor was a, it's basically a training newspaper for people who went on to do bigger and better things in a lot of cases. So many Concord Monitor alumnus have won Pulitzer Prizes and stuff. And that's partly because Mike Pride ran a shop, the editor-in-chief ran a shop there where they were going to train you. They weren't just going to be like, look at your copy and say, okay, looks good, and publish it. They were going to be like, how can this sentence be better? You got sentence-level attention. I don't know how many journalists in newsrooms get that today, but that's how I started out with people who cared about every word of every sentence. And you could, they gave you freedom to try to do different types of leads and they would read them. And sometimes they would make them better. And sometimes they would say, this is crazy. Don't do that. Right. But they were willing to take that a little extra time out of the day and consider your batshit insane lead. And sometimes print it. I mean, that's the, 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 the growing up in an atmosphere as a, as a fledgling journalist where you're encouraged to try and then you're, you know, reeled back when you need to be. That's where I got that. Sounds awesome. Sounds like, sounds like the training was terrific. And again, this is, you know, you're, you're 35 years in. So let's, let's dive right in to the, the current and the, I guess, to pardon the pun, the meaty stuff here. How does one review a restaurant? I'll tell you who I review a restaurant. Earlier in my career, I was required to do thumbs up or thumbs downs, which meant sometimes I had to write negative things. And during the pandemic, beginning of the pandemic, during the chaos, I broke free of that. And only, and I also ditched scoring. And what I got to do after that is the review I write today, which is I'm going to talk to you about a restaurant that I love, or I love something they're doing there. And it's my job to pitch that woo to you, the reader. And not to say, not with adjectives, not like saying, oh, it's just fabulous. You'll have to take my word for it. But I'm a reporter. I got to bring the facts. I got to tell you why. 
And I'm going to make a case. Maybe you buy it, maybe you don't. But it'll be interesting to read either way. Does that make sense? By the time I've decided I'm going to do a review, I've identified something about a place that I want to talk to my audience about. Besides, the, you know, the steak is good. There has to be more to it than that. There has to be narrative. There has to be background. Like, why? I always want to answer the question, why are you putting this restaurant in my face? And I'm like, I will tell you why. And I'm going to make the case. And I'm going to, you know, obviously single out dishes. I, I will even, you know, I will level some criticism in the middle of all of it. You know, it's not just 100%, oh, la-di-da, everything is fine. But if you give people that kind of attention, if you give the reader that level of detail, what you're doing is you're putting it out for them. Like your, your, your interpretation of this data might be different than mine, but here's, here's why I love it. And you're giving them facts that they can base their independent decisions on. You know, maybe I just don't like lemon on fish or whatever, you know? So I try to arm them with the ability to make some of their own decisions while pitching them my view. And they can accept it or reject it. I don't pretend to be a bishop uh, dispensing pearls of inerrant wisdom from the pulpit. I'm a scout who's arguing a case to me. That's it. When we had Lindsay Green on from from Detroit, she talked about anonymity and going to a restaurant. She had there were certain specific things related to her situation. With you, I'm curious. You've been in the city for a long time. All these restaurants, I presume, the restaurant tours know you. How does how are you able to handle it with the fact that you're not probably particularly an anonymous person walking in? Yeah, I mean, I officially abandoned anonymity about five years ago the buffalo news published videos of me and stuff i think the whole anonymity thing has basically been a more or less a shock basically a waste of time i mean you can wear wigs and you can do everything but here's so i am speaking as a person who is recognized probably by most of the restaurateurs who are willing to look there was a time when i was officially anonymous and pictures of me were posted up in kitchens across town. And what you found out was that even in cases where I specifically know my photograph was posted in at least three locations in one top Buffalo restaurant, I walked past all of them. None of the people who were supposed to spot me spotted me. The person who recognized me was our server, who, I, who I've seen at a, a bunch of different places. And our server was the one who got fired at the end of the day. Because the three other people who were supposed to be checking for VIPs failed and they had to blame someone. So here's my thing about anonymity. Okay, I walk in, hey, it's me, and I'm probably going to write about your place. Seriously, what are you going to do? Are you going to run out and buy better fish than you have in the cooler? Is your chef going to chuck the menu and like invent a sauce? All you can do is give me your best server, put your best foot forward, and that's it. I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, in the end, you, you, I mean, people know in this town that you can't, I'm not interested in, you know, being wooed, you know? I don't want people whispering in my ear, oh, Mr. Galarno, excellent choice. I'm there to do a job, and I serve the readers. I don't work for the restaurant people. And so, I'm sorry, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say, how many, how many times do you visit a place before you publish a review? These days, probably three or four. In the olden times, sometimes I got one visit and I had to pull the trigger on an opinion, and that was not comfortable for me. 
but I had to do it because that's that was the gig at that point. In the in the current situation that you're in, I'm getting the sense that photography is really important to what you do. How important is it? I think it's at least half the battle. It might be more. You know, and I'm from a word nerd background, okay? And I've taught journalism for 23 years. Words, words, words. This coming semester, I'm, I'm going to start with video because not only is it the vernacular that the students I'm teaching are more familiar with, but it is in the right hands as compelling, I mean, more compelling, frankly, than words alone. So when I'm doing reviews now, I'm shooting stills, I'm shooting video, I'm shooting... So you're a service journalist. This this is service journalism. A couple of times that we've talked to service journalists as we've done this uh, podcast. And I found a good example of this a couple of years ago when someone wrote a letter to the editor about your lack of attention to gluten-free food. And your response was this massive piece reviewing the best options in the city. I view that as one situation where you very much filled a reader's needs. Do you have any other memorable stories about filling readers' needs? Oh, well... Yeah. Well, first of all, let me say that I think that the future, one of the future for journalism and journalists and communities is taking advantage of the current digital realities to offer a level of service journalism that was impossible before. Today, I can put up a question to 25,000 people in my city at once. That, your audience is your best reporting tool. So part of the reason I love getting people telling me I got something wrong or I missed something because it always gives me an opportunity to get better at my report. And, and, I, and I've been really blatant about this to the audience when I worked for the Buffalo News and now when I'm doing my own thing, send me your stuff. That's how this works. Send me your questions. Through your questions, I discover things and then I can tell everyone. What are some of the recipe pieces that you've done uh, like to write? And uh, I'm just I'm trying to go through the different you know circles of of what you do here. And I found pieces about perfecting ribs or perfecting potato pancakes. And I thought that was mm -hmm. kind, of, mm -hmm. kind of a cool contrast. What are uh, what are those like to write? Well, when I am I have the opportunity to write a cooking piece and present a recipe to the audience, what I'm looking for is a recipe that they're actually going to use. Not something that shows off like this incredibly complicated thing. I want them to actually do it. So I make the case that the amount of work you're going to have to go through is worth it. And then I have five years experience testing and writing recipes. What that comes down to is back and forth with readers who didn't understand some things. And so now, I mean, you can't always get everyone to understand everything, but I have a pretty good format and I can reproduce, help people reproduce the joy I have in a particular dish in their own home. That's like a gift. And people love it, especially the simple stuff, potatoes, rice, tofu. I mean, things people actually are going to buy and eat. You know, I can give you, I can give you recipes for crab cakes all day long, but most people are only going to make crab cakes once or twice a year. We've talked for about 20 minutes now, and we haven't necessarily, we don't often delve into business decisions when we talk to our guests on this podcast, but you essentially made one by leaving the Buffalo News and going the independent route with a newsletter, a subscription newsletter called Four Bytes. What went into the decision to go independent? Well, 
some years ago, I realized that Buffalo News was not going to have the distance. And you could say that about newspapers in general. I mean, basically, unless you're working for one of the three or four mega papers, your futures are dimming, your avenues are dimming. And and after st- basically teaching journalism brought me to this point, I think a lot earlier than a lot of my fellow people, because I had to try to explain this to the kids, what was going on. And they were asking me about job prospects, and I was like, yeah. So I started building a plan three or four years ago and launched it when the Buffalo News announced that they were going to start printing the newspaper three and a half hours away in Cleveland, Ohio. And I was, I called my attorney, I called my CPA, and I was like, it's go time. And I had so much help from other people who were basically taking that same journey from like Emily Nunn, a, a great food writer on Substack. She gave me some of her time. She writes Department of Salad, and she's a former Chicago Tribune food writer who's doing it on Substack. I talked to her. I explored. I, I, I approached it like a reporter. I, I explored. I, I spent, I probably talked to 50 people in different segments of different things, figuring out what I wanted to do. And then it was time to go. I went. So I would imagine, too, that with food, it's an easier decision than if you were covering something else, because based on what I've seen, the two sections that people seem to view as most essential these days among the small group of people that still get their daily newspaper are food and sports. What what other business like decision type things did you have to consider and like what do you consider now like if you know you have a subscription price you're trying to probably hit a certain number in your head what are some of those things well right now i decided that since i'm not in any financial peril i'm teaching at the university two classes i don't have to make a standalone living from four bites so and plus i'm a remember i'm a journalism teacher so i have certain theories that I'm going to try to experiment with, with this, as well as delivered, of course, food, news, and images to the audience. So one of the things is I'm going to take, I don't, you know, advertising is not possible. I'm not going to do advertising. The idea in my head is, can I figure out if I do this for a year, is it possible for a journalist today to make a living from just selling it directly to the consumer? Boom, that's it. I don't know if that's true, but I feel like I should find out. And in the meantime, everything has been, people have been super encouraging. The people at Substack were helpful in helping me make sure things were set up right. I started out with an embarrassing set of graphics on my Substack, which had been replaced by an, a, a terrifically talented artist, Luke Copping, who actually did the photograph of me with the Cheetos, the orange one that you might have seen. He said, oh, you can't do that. And he sent me the actual graphics that I'm using right now on my Substack, which say four bytes in a much nicer way than they used to. I'm crowdsourcing my career. We should also answer the question, why is it called four bytes? Four bytes is my shorthand for a dish that blows my doors off. Because when I go to a place, I am there to collect data. I'm not there to particularly eat everything. So I usually go with friends. I get a whole bunch of dishes. I take one bite of everything. Usually one bite is enough to tell whether or not I want a second bite. Sometimes a second bite, you're like trying to figure things out. 
a third bite if things are really tasty, but if you take three bites of everything, you won't make it to dessert. So when I go four bites on something, I have completely abandoned my professional capabilities and I'm here for this dish. And frankly, I'd rather be alone. Okay. Me and this dish. <laughs> so four bites is like, ah, uh, you know, that is the four alarm, I guess, like bazinga. And it doesn't happen in every place. Well, what makes Buffalo so interesting to cover from a food perspective? Well, you have, you know, centuries of immigrants coming to town, your Italians, your Polish, your Germans. And now there is a new wave. I shouldn't say wave. There's a, it's more immigration into the city from which making it just an incredibly diverse place. I am finding out every well, several times a week now, new places that are popping up. I didn't know about. We have now we have three Bengali restaurants. We have three Sri Lankan restaurants. I mean, like the specialties. We have a Chetnad Indian restaurant. You know, before it was, we have Indian food, quote unquote, which turns out to be basically a best hits northern Indian menu, a lot of heavy curries, some of them sweetened butter chicken. Well, it turns out that India is a pretty darn big continent and they have all sorts of fantastic stuff. And because of the people who are making Buffalo a new home, it is showing up in Buffalo. Buffalo is 7% Burmese, as in from Burma. And we have about 15 Burmese restaurants. And people need to know about this stuff. And it's my job to get it out there. And I mean, nobody's heard about it. So apparently I'm not that good at it, but I'll do, I'll, I'll try. So it sounds like it's almost like a miniature, much, you know, on a smaller scale, a New York City or, or something of, of that nature. With its... I mean, it's dazzlingly diverse. There are two rooms. One's in downtown Buffalo called Downtown Bazaar. The other one's out on Niagara Street on the west side along the river called West Side Bazaar. And between these two rooms, they are incubator spaces for restaurants. Between these two rooms, you can experience uh, 13 different cuisines from distinct Filipino, Malaysian, Egyptian, Congolese, South Sudanese, and Ethiopian. So like three from Africa. I mean, the diversity is amazing. And the food is great, too. What are your favorite kind of projects to work on when covering food? Sounds like you might have just answered that in a way. Well, my favorite moment, and it happens, wow, so often that it's great, is when I realize that I have found something delicious in my town that nobody knows about. Because it's kind of like a scoop, like an investigative reporting, right? But translated to deliciousness. Like when I realize I have found something that is amazing, that is delicious, that's, you know, as part of the diverse smorgasbord of Buffalo that nobody knows about, and it's like five bucks, that rings all the bells. So you got value, you got discovery, you got something that might actually get somebody off their couch and go down the street and find out what their neighbors are up to. And it, and you're supporting a small business. Somebody's trying to make a go of it. it. Like it works for me on all levels. Isn't that harder these days with the abundance of niche, niche content that there, that there is on the, on the internet? Not in Buffalo, New York. It's not there I don't you know go. What it's like in Manhattan, but basically I'm, I think I stand out in the field. What are the, just transitioning here to kind of a broader look at things. You teach journalism as well. And I would imagine that over the 20 plus years that you've taught it, the way that you've taught it has changed considerably. 
what am I getting if I if I take a class with you? You're getting so the University of Buffalo does not have a journalism department or a journalism minor. It has a cluster of journalism classes in the English department. So if you take mine, which is English 213, you're getting basically boot camp. You come in, it's a no prerequisite class. So I get the complete assortment of everybody. And the University of Buffalo has an undergraduate population of about, I think it's like 14,000. It's a fairly large group. And by the time you come out, you will have done two stories that you came up with the idea with yourself, or I will assign you an idea. Two stories from idea stage to brainstorming to research to looking stuff up to finding people, interviewing people. You're going to go out and talk to strangers. And you're going to come back and we're going to put that together and then we're going to do it again. And against the backdrop of, you know, history and libel law and stuff like that. So basically, you're going to do some journalism. You're going to go out and talk to strangers. And you know what? It works. Kind of like throw them in the pool and see if they swim. But <laughs> with all the support in the world. So in my class, you get like, you know, emails answered, toot sweet. I talk, you know, if you need it, you get my cell phone number. Like I'm working with people on stories. Like basically, I'm their city editor. And they pitch me stories and I say, okay, go do it. And then they come back to me with their problems. And I'm like, okay, well, don't do that. Do this. And they go out and try to prosecute their agenda. And it works. And many, I, at least at least 50 of my students over the years, out of God, 600 students, have gone on to something media-ish that I know of. And I'm, I'm proud of that. I'm not gonna, I, I don't take credit for that. I think I'm good at spotting people who've got some knack and are willing to work and giving them a boot and saying, you could really do this if you try. You have to have the motor. I cannot give you the motor. And what are you finding about the journalism student in 2020, 20, I guess 2024 now? I am finding a lot of young people who, when they actually hear that they can actually do something about it, like they can, like they're, I'm like, why you could be a reporter you could get your sub stack and you could write about what you want to write you gain an audience and they see value in what you do they will pay you to do it and you know that is a hope i mean i'm not saying just sub stack but that 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 there are reinventions going on of journalism that digital is flexible in many ways most importantly digital it's free or nearly free at the basic level. I'm not talking about expensive cameras and microphones, but every single person in my classes has something in their hand that is a mini television studio. And once you help them see how they can use that to gather and deliver information on subjects that are of interest to them, start seeing light bulbs go on. Like, I'm not sure what the answer is to save journalism, but I think kids can figure it out because... You know, I started typing. I changed typewriter ribbons when I started. It's funny how it it's evolved over your long career. So the show is called The Journalism Salute. We salute you for your good work, and we ask that you do likewise. Is there a journalist or journalism organization that you would like to salute for their good work to close the interview? Sure, absolutely. Investigative Reporters and Editors is where I got my start. And all I have to say is that as someone who's often been a frustrated investigative reporter, getting to read what ProPublica is doing right now, it just, it, it does this 
this old journalist heart good. You know, the Supreme Court stopped doing the stories that no one else in this country was apparently able or willing or whatever. They're getting it done. So I, I wish for them all the best. That's, I appreciate you saying that. We had a ProPublica reporter on a while back. It was a very fruitful interview for sure, as this one has been as well. well. Just, honestly, if ProPublica is listening, if you guys are hiring, let me know. It, you know <laughs> I mean, seriously, you read these stories, you'd be like, that's an outfit I want to work for. Andrew Galarno, thank you for taking the time to join us. Best of luck with your project, with your project, with your best of luck with your newsletter. We look forward to following it as it goes along. Hey, come on over to 4Bytes, F-O-U-R-B-I-T-E-S dot net and watch a guy try not to humiliate himself while he learns how to TikTok and do the other things that are digitally needful to reach today's audiences. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.